Well, good morning. We have gathered as the people of God in response to the calling of the Spirit of God to be filled with that Spirit and gifted and empowered to give God the praise that's due His name. Our call to worship this morning is a responsive reading using Psalm 100. So let us uh, speak responsively and let the Word of God uh, move deep in our hearts. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. 
the generation. I was just so excited about the faithfulness of God, I couldn't stop. Well, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us stand hymn number one, Psalm 100, set to music. So we'll repeat that in that sort of way. Let us give God glory. Okay. would please. I'm always uh, thankful to welcome each of you as we've gathered on site to worship this day, to be a part of what God is doing here, but also for the opportunity to connect to those online, whether by live stream or recording. Thank you for letting us share this moment here with you wherever you are. It's an amazing way that the Father uh, brings people together and the Holy Spirit makes those um, transitions. After the service this morning, a couple of quick things. Usually, I gather all comers for a question and answer in a classroom downstairs. We talk through the sermon or current events, just whatever would be interesting to you. I'm happy to do that. But today, have we got a deal for you. Coffee and munchies in the library like usual, except we'll also include ice cream. We're preparing for summer. We're also celebrating uh, profession of faith, uh, new members through transfer, just a lot of activities. And it just seemed like a good time to celebrate. Stay around. uh, Make sure you speak to some folks. Enjoy the ice cream. Enjoy the time. We realized in preparation that at Watershed and at Fusion this morning as well, there'll be several profession of faith and people joining. So it's a fruitful time. God is moving across all three of our campuses, and we're thankful to be a part of that, celebrating new uh, covenant members uh, and all that God is doing. 
Now, yesterday we had a moms to mom kind of a sale for clothes and goods, helping support families in that way. Uh, we have some baked goods left over from that. If you'd like to take those home for a contribution to our Honduras mission team, that would be quite helpful. Um, we're thankful for all these things that get going. It was Christine McDonald that led that moms to mom and she's the one to thank for the ice cream. So give credit where credit is due. Also coming up, uh, you should have gotten a bulletin coming in that has a lot of our intercessory needs and other things. But also uh, for the ladies, it'll be about June 3rd. Is that the date? Yes. A gathering uh, at the garden home of Joyce Cortman for tea and spring. We make sure spring will be here by June. Make sure to pick one of those up and be a part of what's going on. We're glad to have you with that. And speaking of garden flowers and spring, we have a slide for a, um, again, a mission fundraiser that we're doing, hanging baskets. And if you'd like to order those and get them, that would be quite helpful. Uh, we would appreciate that. Our faith is built not from our own sensibilities, but it's a gift given to us and something that shapes us as well. And so we typically use a question from the Heidelberg Catechism to um, touch that historic faith in our own day and time. We've been using question number 115. So let's begin with this. Since no one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that the longer we live, the more we may know to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, namely perfection. Well, alrighty, at this point, I believe I hand things over to Nate, and I'm going to ask our tech folks. Yeah, come on up, David. That's good. It's not working, so if Gary or somebody could get that going, it'll be a big help for the sermon. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for allowing me to join you this morning. We, as Pastor Bill talked about, have an exciting thing to celebrate with you. We have David Steenwake up here with us. Uh, he's going to be celebrating and in, in making his profession of faith this morning, which is pretty cool. It's a great step in his faith journey. And uh, I'm excited to celebrate that with him, and I hope you guys are as well. So a couple, couple quick things, David, that I just want to point out and, and to talk to the congregation for just a minute, too. We've talked through the questions, and you're ready for those, and we'll get to those in just a second. Um, but profession of faith really is... Is a, is a list of kind of three uh, sets of promises or three types of promises that I just want to point out to you real quick. The first one, of course, is a promise from God, and that kind of happened at your baptism, right? He promised to make himself known to you. He promised to kind of lead you down this journey. He promised to put people in your life that would help you to know him better, and of course, to protect you and walk alongside of you as, as we kind of got to this point, and then, of course, the journey beyond this point as well. And then a second promise that was made at your baptism was made by the people in your life. Your church, your family, your friends, to raise you up, to protect you, to watch over you, and of course to help you know God as well. 
So that's kind of that second promise that happens at your baptism. That's kind of a part of your your profession of faith right now as well. And the third one, which is the one we're going to hit on just here in just a second, comes from you. And it's a promise to know God, to love God, and to do your best to live for him along along the rest of your journey, life faith journey, right? Very good. So I've got three, uh, three questions to walk through with you real quick here. And we've talked about these questions. We've, we've gone over these questions. You know the answers to these questions. But listen closely again. And at the very end, I'll tell you when. Um, if you can answer, I do with God's help. Okay? First question for you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent to redeem the world? Do you love and trust him as the one who saves you from your sin? And do you, with repentance and joy, embrace him as the Lord of your life? That's question one. Long question. Question two. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God, revealing Christ and his redemption, and that, was the, and that the confessions of this church faithfully reflect this revelation? That's question two. And then question three. Do you accept the gracious promises that God sealed to you in your baptism, and do you affirm your union with Christ and his church, which your baptism signifies. Last one, sorry, there's four. I've said three a few times. You know, it goes on a long time, this stuff. All right, here we go. Question four, do you promise to do all you can with the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen your love and commitment to Christ by sharing faithfully in the life of the church, honoring and submitting to its authority, and do you join with the people of God in doing the work of the Lord everywhere? If you can say so, you can respond, I do, God helping me. I do. God helping me. That a boy. Well done. Now I've got one more question for the congregation here. If you guys wouldn't mind standing if you're able, one question for you guys. And then again, at the end, uh, I do God helping me if you're willing to respond in that manner. Congregation, do you promise to love, encourage, and support David by teaching the gospel of God's love, by being an example of Christian faith and character, and by giving the strong support of God's family in fellowship, prayer, and service. Congregation, how do you answer? We do. We do. Very good. Pastor Bill? How about a round of applause for David a second? This is hard to do. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask two things. One, those who are joining by transfer of membership, come forward. The rest of you, as you're able, have a seat if you would. We wanted to get everybody together for this moment uh, so that we can celebrate that. David, we stand with you. Uh, last time you were up here, you were on your way to South Africa. Um, and now, this moment, let's kind of find our way. I want to welcome Terry Gibson. I'll point folks out. And then here to the end, uh, Karen and Marshall Lohman, David and Sue Schroeder are, we got preempted, they're on grandparent duty at a baptism in their family. And I save for the last, Peter and Barb DeVries, because I'm going to tell a brief story about Peter. He has family roots into dramatic, radical change at Hardawaik. So you may want to think before you receive him. His great-grandfather, Joseph DeVries, was the pastor of Hardawaik from 1927 to 1929. And it was his his grandfather who began the first service at Hardawaik in the English language. So, I'm very thankful to your grandfather. 
I can't even order dinner in Dutch. So for all of you, we welcome you, give you thanks. I'm thankful that I get to do ministry with Nate, a marvelous team that we have. Um, Here we are. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness that you have been at work since your creation to draw people to yourself. And we thank you that that's seen most supremely and powerful in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so now in this moment, this time, we see the way you are drawing people to yourself and adding them to this particular expression of your body, Heart Awake Ministries. We pray that your grace would continue to lead each of these people, help them identify exactly where they fit into your good work as we pursue that together. We give you praise and thanks for your kindness to us in Jesus' name, for he is our hope and joy. All of these things we pray and give to you in Jesus' mighty name and God's people said together, amen and amen. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. You'll have an opportunity to say hello to them um, at the close of the service. Uh, We've set aside that time. Very thankful for all of that. Well, let us as God's people, as you're able, stand with me and let's sing hymn number 877, a great gospel truth, we give thee but thine own. You may be seated. Um, I mentioned that I get to work through the course of the week, share ministry with uh, Nate DeWitt in terms of student ministry, and Dee Stahl kind of spearheads our congregational care and missions work. I've asked her to lead our prayer time. Good morning. Won't you join me this morning in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you today with our hearts full of praise and thanksgiving. And as we gather in this place, we are reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness that endure forever. We give thanks for the wonders you have done and for the wisdom and understanding you have shown us. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 111, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. We delight in your works, O Lord, and we give you all the glory and honor that is due your name. Today we have gathered and we have witnessed the profession of faith of David here in celebration. 
Later this morning, the baptism of four precious babies across our campus. We will celebrate the baptism of Cameron during fusion this morning, and at Watershed, the baptism of Nora, Jones, and Malone. As we reflect on the significance of these events and the blessings they bring, we, re we remember that baptism is a symbol of new life and a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. We remember our own faith journeys and the ways in which we've been transformed by God's grace. May we continue to grow in our faith and be a source of encouragement and support to those who are just beginning their journeys. We pray for these families that they may be filled with the Holy Spirit and guided by God's love and wisdom. We also lift up those in our community who are sick, who are recovering from surgeries or waiting to have surgery, people who are experiencing broken relationships or grieving the loss of a loved one. Ask, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you comfort them and provide them with the strength and the healing they need. We know that there are many things that weigh heavy on hearts of those within our community of believers that we're not aware of, but you are. We ask that you be with those who are struggling in ways that we cannot see, and that you provide them with the comfort and the support that they need. We pray for recent world events, asking for peace and guidance in uncertain times. We ask for your wisdom and guidance for our country's leaders, our president, and those who work within our government, and for our per military personnel who serve and protect us, Lord. Protect them, body and spirit. Use them to your glory, Lord. Father, we pray for our supported missionaries who serve in many areas of the world, and for those from our community who serve quietly, sharing their gifts from other, for others' benefits. Use them also for your glory. We thank you for the ministry of Neighbors Plus and all of the ways that they serve our Holland community, working with families and children, providing them with, for hope and a future. And we pray for Pastor Bill this morning as he presents your word to us, asking that you give him the words to speak and the courage to lead us in your ways. We thank you for the fusion community and for Pastor JB and for Watershed community and Pastor Aaron. We thank you for your love and grace, your gift of salvation, and we ask that you continue to bless us and guide us in all that we do. And now, Father, hear our prayers as we pray together as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Dee. I'm going to ask at this time, we usually take a break, and I invite the children who'd like to come up and have a story. Join me up here, any of you. Uh, we don't have a particular age on that. Uh, some folks have threatened to be a part of that. Becky, why don't you come down here, get to see another one of the folks that I serve with, Becky Visser, our children's ministry uh, director. And you see here... 
Okay, Michael, why don't you come up here and we'll just let... Oh, it's always sneaky, isn't it? Guys, this is a book I found in our library called Stand Up Guys, 50 Christian Men Who Changed the World. It's a challenge to grow up, and so I know one of the things that helped me was seeing other men who went before me. We're going to look at a particular fellow. His name is Eric Liddell, and you see the picture. What does it look like he's doing on the screen there? Okay, John. Okay, he's, but he's an athlete. So he's either running or swimming. Let me read this. This is Eric Liddell. He lived from 1902 to 1945 in Scotland and in China. Eric Liddell stepped off the train in a rural war-torn China. This would be his home again, now that he was starting missions work as a teacher. And as he glanced around the campus that would be his new high school and saw the children running and playing, his mind flashed back to the summer of 1924 in Paris, France. Everyone who had expected Eric to win the gold medal in the 100-meter race, but he chose not to run so that he could honor the Sabbath with a day of complete rest unto the Lord. He decided to express that obedience to God rather than win an Olympic gold medal. Even though it wasn't his best event, he entered the 400-meter race, and he won first place, even setting a new world record. But now he was in China, the country where he was born as a child of missionaries. He had showed his love for sport by serving as a referee on the playing fields for his Chinese students. He wanted them to be carefree, even though Japanese soldiers, because it was close to World War II, were about to invade their homes. When the British authorities warned that all citizens should leave China immediately, Eric decided to stay and continue his work to teach his Chinese students. Soon he was arrested and placed in a Japanese internment camp. Eric's always positive attitude continued even in these harsh circumstances. He taught science to the children so that they wouldn't fall behind in school. He helped the older people in the camp, making sure they had the supplies they needed. Even though he was tired at night, he could still be found staying up late, organizing events like chess matches, square dances, and soccer games. That would be probably your favorite, to keep spirits up. Eventually, Eric's health gave out. He died in the internment camp, the prison camp, just five months before it was, he was freed. He had been a man overflowing with good humor, one friend said, and it spilled over to everyone around him. Even though he is still the most famous Scottish athlete, Eric was buried on a tiny plot behind the Japanese officer's quarters marked by a small wooden cross. So the greatest athlete in the history of modern Scotland was called by God to share the gospel as a teacher with the Chinese students. And he did that even at the cost of his life. These are faithful examples of the goodness of grace and God's work. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for people we see who show us what it means to live bravely, to live kindly, to live filled with your Holy Spirit, whatever the circumstances. Guide and help each of us to live faithfully in our moment, 
Thank you for the joy that typically means, but help us to stand strong even when there's challenges. We thank you for these uh, kids, and we thank you for all kids and the opportunity you've given us at Hardawike through our leaders like Becky to minister your grace. Guide us, be with them, and fill us with great hope at every step. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together. Amen. All right, some of you will head off to class and others back home, back to your pew or just whatever works. <laughs> Yabadoo. All right, well, we are uh, almost to the end of our larger series that has we've called, uh, or is based on the story, the mini-series, the focus for these few weeks, we call All Things New. Uh, this is the second to the last. Next week, we will finish with the book of Revelation. So, we've taken this broad sweep of Scripture and seen how every era in Israel's history, how every person, Old Testament, New Testament, every event, points to the great work that God had intended from the beginning, rescuing people through the work that Jesus did at the cross. So right now we're into what would be week 30 uh, of this series, All Things New. We're going to look at Paul's final days, and I've chosen two verses from this larger reading from his book um, of 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. So I'm going to ask if you will, if you'll stand out of reverence and appreciation for God's Word, uh, and I will read. This is the Word of God from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. For this reason, Paul writes, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, the, for the Spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but instead, it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your marvelous word that you moved upon Paul in a prison centuries ago so that his words became vessels, as it were, for your spirit to speak to us. Thank you for the way you've preserved these texts, and now we can open them we ask, Holy Spirit, that just as you've overseen the, the writing, the preservation, now the translation, that you would oversee the reception. Be with your people. Guard them from my brokenness, but fill us with a great hope for the good things you are doing. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Wonderful. You may be seated. Well, we're coming towards the end of the story. We're into the end, if you will, of the New Testament and this uh, look at 2 Timothy. And I want to call this, growing out of that, finishing well. Let me set some context for 2 Timothy. Remember, a young man named Saul, probably in his mid-twenties years ago, experienced a transcendent encounter. He met something bigger than him this encounter with the risen from the dead Jesus on the road to Damascus that transformed him from the Saul that he was and that he'd been trained to be and that he was very good at 
It transformed him into Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. Now 30, less than 40 years later probably, he's in his late 50s. As best we can reconstruct his life, in a few short years he will be murdered by the Roman government. And he's probably writing from a prison. But these are last reflections that he passes on to a friend, someone who will carry the torch of his ministry and of his faith into a next generation. He's writing to his friend Timothy. They'd been in missionary settings before. He'd uh, left Timothy to pastor churches that he'd planted. And now he's handing off. So he's, he's looking uh, in a marvelous way to pass things along. It was easy as I was preparing for this sermon to think, okay, here's Paul, a religious guy, passing things on to Timothy, another religious professional. And to just think of it in terms of church people talking to church people. But as I prayed about it and began to think about who would this benefit, I realized that there's something of more substance and character to this. This is Paul with the gathered wisdom of his life. This is the final fruition of his training and experience and the anointing, his calling. And he hands off not just a message for people in ministry, but for people who are Christ followers in every aspect of life. And I saw this clearly as I began to focus in on chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift. I want to start by looking at this idea of the gift. For, Paul, for Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God had given him, one of the first things he's going to need to do is to identify the gift. Now, realize in Timothy's life, just as Paul had this encounter with trans- transcendence on the Damascus Road, so Timothy here has been given a gift, something from beyond himself, something from beyond the world. Something from God to him in the life that he was living in the real world. And that's a word for each one of us. Fan into flame the gift that God has given you. You. God has given you a gift. Don't miss it. Fan it into flame. Whatever stage of life you're in, cultivate it, encourage it. Give it practice. So I want to talk about spiritual gifts at the beginning here. Now, there's much, much more we could do. I've often done a seminar in terms of uh, training and building all sorts of new members and, and leaders. We'll talk about spiritual gifts. I've done it on a Friday night to a Saturday morning where we're looking at all the gifts referred to, how these operate, where they're said in the Old Testament. But I want to just give you, out of all of that, A quick summary. How do I define spiritual gifts? They're divine enablements. They're impact of the transcendent on our lives, but they're given to glorify God and to uh, benefit others. God does not give you a gift for the sole purpose of feeling good about yourself. 
He gives you a gift. He wants to enable you with divine power so that you can glorify him and serve others. And as you begin to identify and pursue the gifts that God has given you for where you function in life, don't worry so much about what does this mean for me. Ask yourself again and again, is God being glorified in this? Are others benefiting from that? And you know what will happen? If you'll focus on those two things, you'll find great joy and fruitfulness. If you make it about you, how does this serve me? Suddenly you'll find others aren't benefiting as much, nor is God glorified as much. Because gifts are given for the glory of God and the benefit of others in the course of their life in this real world. I want to identify once again that gifts are about transcendence at work in your life. This is how the Spirit of God will indwell you and then use you to benefit others and to glorify God. So it's important, I believe, that people connected with the ministry, Christ followers who want to move along in their journey of being found in, formed by, and following, that you be able to identify and discover your spiritual gifts. Where's transcendence at work in your life? How do you do that? Well, the first thing, and I'm going to give you some quick, practical, concrete steps. First, you're going to need to acknowledge the source. That is to say, the source of the gift. It's far too common in our world to reduce to just physical life, the imminent frame, I call that week to week, to just think that what is a gift is just something from the imminent frame. It's a talent or a skill. Indeed, Many people have the idea that, well, gifts are for others. I, I just function in this world. Oh, I've got some skills. Oh, I've gotten training. Oh, I might even have a talent for something. But they don't recognize that that's the, the intersection of God's grace at work in their life. And it happens to church people. Friends, I want to tell you, a church should be able to help people identify those gifts, cultivate them, fan them into flame, and see them bear fruit. I observed this in the life of my own father, who I deeply loved. He was going through his entire church life at one point, having never heard what the Bible teaches about spiritual gifts. Maybe you relate to that. You're faithful in church. You're happy to help, glad to contribute, thankful for the friends you have, for the opportunity to give God praise, thankful for friends and life shared. But you've never heard the Bible's teaching about spiritual gifts in you for God's glory and for the benefit of others. So you hear Paul say to Timothy, fan into flame, the gift given you, and you think, oh, that's for them. That's all my dad had heard for years of his life. Now, he had some talents. He was pretty capable. Anybody would look at my dad early on in life and say, man, he's got a knack for problem solving. At 14, he was a really good car mechanic. He could take broken cars, kind of figure out what was going wrong and get them going. And boy, do I grew up hearing stories of my dad and his brother, my uncle, taking rat trap old cars, getting them moving again. He had a talent and a knack for problem solving. He cultivated through the course of his life his ability to 
make marvelous things. He was a great woodworker. But his church never helped him see that those things were not there by the luck of the draw or because of the family he grew up in or the community he grew up in. Those were places of transcendence that God was giving him a gift. It wasn't until later in his Christian life that he began to realize, wait a minute, these are God-given enablements that I can use for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. And so he would take that gift of craftsmanship, and though, I mean, he was a good dad, a good man, he prayed, but he did not have the gift of intercession. But with the gift of craftsmanship, he built these marvelous kneelers for his church so that those with the gift of intercession could extend their ministry. It said to all who looked at them, wow, this church values prayer. But more than that, the church he was going to then valued gifts. It's a great thing to let people with gifts of craftsmanship exercise that. My dad went on a mission trip, and I've told this story before, so I won't spend a lot of time. He was just on a mission trip with doctors and dentists who were doing work to help plant a church. He is not a doctor or dentist, so he was just kind of along for the ride until they got back. And I asked a friend of mine who was a dentist on that trip and said, you know, we got more work done. We were able to minister to more people, gather more folks for that church plant than any trip we've ever taken because your dad was able to keep the generators going. Now, my dad was just using his talent, so he thought. He later came to see that that was a gifting that God had given him, and he could use it in a mission team to glorify God and to the benefit of others. Many people are walking around with an imminent frame perspective on their life. I live in the world of physics and psychology and economics social forces, I want to tell you, what you may think is the luck of the draw is a talent, may well be the intersection of transcendence in your life. So fan into flame the gift God has given you. Discover, identify it, acknowledge the source. To do that, listen to the giver. Where is God calling you? What is the hope and the passion that moves you? can work with all of these in a much deeper way at another time, perhaps. Listen to God's people, the church. The church ought to be a place that gives opportunity for folks to try out a ministry, try out a gift. You know, I've tried out children's ministry. And because we experimented and evaluated, they decided to put me in another area. <laughs> That's good for our children and for the church, but I needed that feedback from the church. No, Bill, duct tape is not a viable classroom uh, management tool. Okay, who knew? Um, I was gonna say, not that my parents raised me that way, you understand. But you see, it ought to be a safe place to be encouraged, to step into this, to try that, to see how these what the world calls in the imminent frame talents, but what God intends them as gifts to be fanned into flame and used to his glory and to the benefit of others. So fan it into flame. How do you do that? What does that mean? Well, in the imminent frame, again, the world in which we live, the way you do that is get some training. 
I sensed a gift to be able to communicate the hope of the gospel to people. So I went to seminary. Seminary didn't give me a gift. They gave me a degree. And that's been kind of helpful. But those two are never the same thing. So get some training, get mentoring, learn from another practitioner. There was a time in my life I'd been out of ministry. I was considering getting back in. I wanted to fan that flame into gift. I want to tell you, because of the job I was working at that moment, I listened to three to five Tim Keller sermons a day. He mentored me by CD. And it fanned into flame the gift in my life. Find another person who's serving well with this gifting. Learn from them. Add knowledge. What are the risks? How do you apply? What are ways that it sets you up for success and helping people? What are ways that get in the way? Use the imminent frame to fan the flame of the gift. Take that place where transcendence intersects. Friends, this is life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is normative Christian life. Jesus did not go to the cross, give his life, and rescue you and me so that we could go get to work for him, much less so that we might just wait for him to come back. Jesus was raised from the dead so that he might empower us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, gifting us to give him glory and empower others to see the gospel go forward. Friends, we get to be players in the game. We've just had the NFL draft. And we see different teams get different peoples and different skill sets. I believe that the people that God is bringing to Hardawike will come with divine empowerments, gifts of God to glorify him and to benefit others. And that part of my calling is to see where God is moving and bringing those together to help you fan that flame, to encourage it, to support it, to organize it, and to release you in ministry. Many of you are in places where I cannot go. Some of you are in places where if I showed up, I would not be listened to. It's a world in which we live, that's fine, because God is sending you. This is normative Christian life. I'll close this part with just this thing. Friends, gifts are the work of the Holy Spirit to give, enable us for service. There's another whole aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fruit. That's where God gives us the character of Jesus, the personality, as it were, of a redeemed gospel-centered person. So gifts are important. The fruit is important. Have you ever known anybody who maybe they have quite a talent or quite a gift, but there's no character? Oh, that's dangerous. I have stories from the history of the church. Gifted people who haven't cultivated their character, but people who focus on character without realizing that God has called them to service will never bear that fruit. So fan into flame the gift that was given you. And then Paul says this interesting thing, for the Spirit of God does not make us timid. He shows us what the Spirit does not give. And what the Spirit does not give to us is timidity or fearfulness. Now, this is a rare word in the New Testament. It's the only time that Paul uses it in his writings. The other times it, it's used, it's always uh, connected with a fearfulness or a withdrawnness, a step back. In Matthew 8, 26, 
It's in the calming of the storm. Jesus says to his disciples in the boat, oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you so timid? In John 14, 27, in the upper room, just before Jesus goes to his death, he says to his disciples, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be timid. Do not be afraid. So you see, when you lack faith, Jesus is saying, you will not have peace and your behaviors will show up as timidity. When you face storms in your life, things that start to rock your boat, and all you have is your own experiences and training, you're like Saul. It's only natural to be timid and fearful, even if you act out your fear with aggressiveness. You've seen that. Insecure people become aggressive. Yeah, that fearfulness that makes people want to, they call it Napoleon complex. You know well of it. If all you have to fall back on is your own experience and training, you're going to naturally move to the timid or to acting it out. In the moment of your fear, you need transcendent resources, God's grace received into your life by faith. Paul is saying that grace is what the Spirit gives. That the Holy Spirit, His grace at work in and through us, that's the resource for facing the storms in our life. If you find yourself internally fearful or hesitant to act, concerned about the consequences, well, what if I say this? Well, what if I do that? It's good to take a breath and avoid being rude, but that's not what I'm talking about. You can kindly raise a question that may help the emperor you're speaking with realize they have no clothes. That's an expression of love. Friends, this is an invitation that the scripture gives us to experience hope and new life. Are you fearful when you see the storms around you? Well, there is an option other than fear or timidity. Are you covering over your fears by means of denial or busyness? One of my best strategies, frankly, so I'll be honest about that. The Spirit calls you to an option. Actually, Paul is clear about what the Spirit does give. First, he gives power. The Greek word there, we touch this from time to time, is dunamis, like dynamite. It's what Luke writes of in Acts 1-8 when he records the words of Jesus, stay there until you receive dunamite. Until you receive power, then you will be my witnesses. You will receive power, power to live with security and with joy and with hope. He'll give you love. And friends, I touch this from time to time again. The New Testament has three different Greek words that we tend to translate with the word love. The first is eros, like erotic, what's in it for me? What do I get? That's not what Paul is writing here. The second one is phileo, brotherly love, like Philadelphia. It's the love that's exchange. That's not what Paul is writing about here. He's using the very unique New Testament word for love, agape, which means acting in the best interest of others. 
Now, there's a time and a place for eros. There's a time and a place for phileo. But what the Spirit gives is agape. Agape love is when the parent of a two-year-old faces the fact that as a parent, God has placed me in their life to know better when they should go to bed than they and to act in their best interest regardless of the, what shall we say, pushback. You act in their best interest for their benefit. Agape, though he wouldn't have thought of it this way, was what Coach Dennehy was doing when he said, you can do better than that, Bill. Run a lap. Ooh. He saw something in me as a football player that I never saw in myself, and he would not let me accept second best. See, this is what the Spirit does. It gives us power. The Spirit of God gives us love for other people, not just for ourselves. And then this weird promise that the Spirit will give us self-control. Now, this too is another odd word. It's not regularly used in the New Testament. This is a word that it took the Spirit of God almost 50 years to teach Paul about. So you're getting the unique wisdom at the end of his life. It speaks of a, a, a wisdom for living. Sound mind is one translation. Self-control. I was really struggling with exactly how to um, communicate what this was about. And then in my daily devotional reading, I've been reading, I think, for about the fourth time. I was such a wisdom deficit that I've been reading day by day from Tim and Kathy Keller's devotional, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. And three days in a row this week, Tim had an anointed word about self-control. I'm working on this passage. I'm reflecting on where the Spirit was convicting me in this devotional book that morning. And I'm thinking, looks like God at work. So let me touch some of these things about self-control from April 24th. Self-control, the importance. The text he asked you to meditate on was Proverbs 16.32. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A warrior knew how to conquer and master a whole city. Picture that. But these Proverbs argue that even better is the patient, self-controlled person who knows how to conquer and master himself. This means that it's harder to master yourself than it is to master others or even a whole nation. There are too many examples of world beaters who won prizes or literally conquered nations, but who could not control their tempers, their tongues, or their emotions. In ancient times, people with self-control and prudence were highly admired by those who followed whim and passion. Today, self-control is often seen as unhealthy. Following one's passion, feeling one's anger, and being spontaneous are valued in the world of today's elite, creative, and sophisticated. Yet so many of our most famous celebrities following this pattern have made a shipwreck of their lives. As we have seen, biblical wisdom is all about the goodness of emotion. That's fine. Yet in the end, it is God's word, not our intuitions, our feelings, our emotions, our desires that must be sovereign. 
And then he asked this question, where has lack of self-control brought trouble into your life? Now, I've got a meeting Monday afternoon, so I can't illustrate the answer to that question from my life. See how important self-control is? The next day, this will be shorter. Self-control, the problem. Proverbs 25. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. He writes, a person who lacks self-control is just as defenseless as a city with a broken wall. If you can't control your appetite for food, you will ruin your body. If you can't control your tongue or temper, you will say things that can't be unsaid or taken back. If you can't control your sexual desires, you will ruin your relationships. If you're impulsive and imprudent, not thinking things out, you will make rash decisions. If you can't say no to people, you will overpromise and either be exhausted and overextended or have a life filled with disillusioned people and broken relationships. Self-control. Self-control, he defines as in any situation is the critical ability to both recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Self-control is about living out of the whole biblical theme of wisdom, I began to see. And that's a radical word in our day and time. Because this is saying that in a world that is pursuing self-actualization, self-development, self-expression, that for the fulfillment of the self, it will require control of the self. It will require discipline. It will require focus. It will require an ability to set aside in the moment the impulse and to live instead through the gifting of transcendence. This is what I would call the gospel-centered personality. You see, for the fulfillment of self, it's going to require the control of self, and that's a work of the Spirit that produces the gospel-centered personality. I want to close by teaching you a little Latin, simul justus et peccator, I believe is how that's pronounced. Don't be overwhelmed. We can break it apart. Simul at the same time, justus, righteous, so at the same time, righteous, et peccator, and sinner. This is a Latin phrase coined by Martin Luther, though it reflects historic biblical theology. Through what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me, indeed for all humanity, I am now in this moment simultaneously at the same time both righteous before God because it's a gift given to me as well as broken and sinner because it has not yet been complete. You see, the gospel produces what is called a humble boldness. I'm humble because I'm saved by grace and not of myself. I can blow it this afternoon because it's not from me. But it also gives me a boldness because I have no one to impress, nothing to win. It's a gift that's been given to me for others. You will find in the story of Eric Liddell a marvelous expression of this. We read this morning about the 1924 Olympics in Paris where he set a world record in an event that wasn't his best. 
He chose not to run in his best event, the 100 meters, even though he was highly favored because the finals were on Sunday. From the movie Chariots of Fire, that's an artistic focus on this Olympic moment in his life. There's a great line. He's explaining to what I believe was his fiance that he will indeed serve as a missionary in China. He recognized the greater calling on his life. It always connects to the Great Commission, by the way. But he will do that only after he competes in the Olympics. He tells this woman, I believe that God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When God thinks of you, what does his face look like? Many times I'll ask people that question and they think, oh, he's just so fed up with my brokenness or, oh, he ought to be glad I'm on his side. No, when God thinks of you, I believe he smiles. My beloved, let me gift you. Come join the work. Be a part of this. The world could recognize that Eric Liddell was a talented runner, but Eric Liddell knew instead that he was a gifted runner. He also knew the giver of the gift. Eric was a good steward of his gift. He trained, he sacrificed, he, completed with, he competed with self-control. He served his country well, also committed to glorifying God. So he served with his gift without timidity or fear. He would stand for God at any cost, even the cost of a probable gold medal. And against distractions, no matter the pressure or the people who told him to change. When, the season, when that season of his life was complete, because you can't perform at Olympic levels forever, he continued that same life in the spirit journey. Now as a high school teacher in China, teaching Chinese uh, students at a missionary school, he continued in that ministry until 1943. The school was overrun by Japanese troops. Liddell and others chose to stay, be with their students, and he was imprisoned. Under horrific conditions, Liddell would continue to live life in the spirit without timidity, but with dunamis, agape, and self-control. In the book Courtyard of the Happy Way, a memoir by fellow prisoner Norman Cliff, Liddell is described in this way, the finest Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet. In all the time in the camp, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. Imagine that being written about a person in a prison camp. Another prisoner at that same time, Langdon Guilty, would write, he was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Liddell passed away on February 21st, 1945, while still held by the Japanese. Gilkey writes, the entire camp, especially its youth, were stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. Eric Liddell's final words, it's complete surrender in reference to how he'd given his life to God. Friends, whether you are an athlete or a teacher or a prisoner or a pastor or a parent, or a grandparent, or a neighbor, or an employee, or an employer. 
That's what it means to run the race well and to finish having fanned the flame into fruitfulness for the glory of God and the benefit of others. I encourage you, I invite you to the race of a lifetime. Life is the people of God in the church of God. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your marvelous love. Thank you for all that we've seen and remembered this day that the Ten Commandments drive us to dependence on Christ, that we take this journey step at a time from baptism to profession of faith to faithfulness. Help us at all times to be encouraged by the cloud of witnesses around us, both in this moment and through history, but also, Father, to fan into flame the gift that has been given us, that we might glorify you and be of benefit to others. Thank you for your marvelous love. Work deep in your people a gratitude of heart at the goodness of your gifts and the glory of the gospel that such a God as holy and sovereign as you would condescend to recognize one such as me and us. Oh, we give you thanks, good God, our hope and our joy. For we pray in his name and all of God's people said together, amen. Friends, it's good to sing of our gratitude. Hymn number 543, now thank we all our God. Stand as you're able and let's give him praise.
friends receive the benediction and the blessing of our God. This is from the pen of Paul to one of the first churches he planted in a small Greek town, Thessalonica. He writes, and now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen? Amen. Amen.